Yes, indeedy. Welcome to the Up Full Life Podcast. And I'm your host, B. Getz. And this is episode number nine. Coming to you live and direct from Oakland, California. And we're so grateful that you are tuning in. Hard to believe we made it to episode 9. And uh, I would like to just take a moment and do a bit of a humble brag and a touchdown dance because uh, since the last episode aired, episode 8 with Ryan Rising, the Upful Life podcast reached 1,000 downloads. Not a huge number in the podcast world, obviously, but it was a small measure of success that... Um, quite proud of and super grateful for everybody that's taken the time to tune in and uh, just the beginning of hopefully a lengthy and uh, enjoyable, engaging podcast. But yeah, nine episodes in and still kind of figuring it out as I go. We're actually well over a thousand downloads. The first episode with Michelangelo Caruba of Turquoise I actually released initially on Mixcloud because I was figuring out the whole podcast medium and everything and just really wanted to get it out, kind of like a test baby, if you will. So that's up at around 200 downloads and not included in the statistics, but for the optics of 1000 on the Podbean uh, app um, that hosts and distributes the Up for Life podcast. You know, that was sort of the ceremonial. So I just want to say thank you and a deep bow to everybody who's tuned in. And of course, to everybody who has been a guest on the show. Could not do it without all of you. And yeah, I'm really, really excited for the future. Uh, now's the time in the podcast that we uh, say thank you and sort of uh, give thanks to movers and shakers and important folks in the culture doing big things. And this coincides with something rather personal for me in my life out here in the Bay Area. Um, So I want to say thank you to One Dome Global, a truly extraordinary oasis on Market Street in the heart of San Francisco. Also, uh, the company that just hired me um, to be a CX agent at their San Francisco location, It's an immersive uh, media company and artist platform that uses creativity to inspire collaboration, connection, and community. We create and curate interactive arts and immersive entertainment in partnership with global visionaries, artists, technologists, and storytellers. And San Francisco is the first of One Dome's permanent locations. I was honored to be brought onto the team uh, the project is headed up by one Becca Dakini, who's a very uh, important and powerful and vibrant voice and force in the festival community and culture. And also a fantastic and electrifying DJ. And she is at the helm of One Dome, and she's uh, really an inspirational figure. And for her to be... Uh, 
interested in bringing me on the team was a very humbling and gratifying thing in itself. And uh, there's an amazing team at One Dome, um, just getting my feet wet. Um, my mom is out here in the Bay Area for 10 days, uh, going to shows and hanging out with us. So I was able to uh, accept this position and this new work opportunity while she's out here visiting, and you really can't put a price on that and being able to share in her pride and happiness along with my own. And, um, yeah, One Dome is just a fantastic, uh, progressive, kaleidoscopic, so many adjectives I could attach to this company, but it's really uh, early on, but I'm confident that this guy is no limit. So I want to say thank you to Becca and AJ and Milton and all the peeps that uh, put in a good word for me and uh, more importantly just shout out the whole One Dome team for creating something truly epic in the heart of San Francisco and uh, gearing it for everybody. It's not just for people who are into the Burning Man scene or into the music festival world or even into virtual reality, even though it incorporates elements of all all of that into its DNA and so much more. Um, it's for everybody, and I anticipate uh, interacting with all walks of life and people and a whole lot of humanity amid the technology there. And I couldn't be more thrilled and more excited for a career opportunity. So I wanted to take this opportunity here on the podcast to give thanks to One Dome just for doing what they do and just coincidentally also for offering me a chance to join their team and participate and facilitate uh, the magic that they create. So there you have it, onedome.global if you want to check them out online. Liminal, L-M-N-L, or the Unreal Garden. Those are the two main exhibits. Um, and if you find yourself in San Francisco and are looking for something really fun, wholesome to do with you know, children, adults, even people like my mom, you know, who this is a whole new universe to them. And I'm excited to show her what's going down at One Dome. Now I got to just dip back let this D'Angelo funk play just for a minute because it's too dirty. I'll be back in a sec. Shout out to Randy at Funkit, Randy Bears, archivist of all kinds of great music history. He dropped a D'Angelo bomb on us last week, including this phenomenal uh, rehearsal that I've been coming back to quite frequently. We'll come back to D'Angelo a little later on for the Vibe Junkie Jam of the Week. Um, but for now, I just wanted to give you a rundown of what you're going to hear. Uh, I've, in episode nine that is, I've made a concerted effort this year to 
really um, even the score, if you will, the ratio, or try to just present more incredible, dynamic, and progressive women in the music culture and you know, all the cultures that surround. Um, but unfortunately, the, the deck is uh, not stacked in their favor. And, uh, you know, the ratio of male to female guests on the show has not been what I'd hoped. But uh, I intend for that to change. I'm making a, a concerted effort, as I mentioned, to reach out to uh, women out there that have a story to tell and something to share, making great art, making a difference in the community. There's no shortage of them. I anticipate having uh, my new boss uh, or team leader, if you will, uh, Miss Becca Dakini, who's at the head of the One Dome experience. Uh, I've already, prior to my taking a position there, I'd already inquired as to her um, inclination to come on the podcast, and she said she'd like to do that. Uh, Lady Chi, a singer with uh, Melvin Seals, JGB, and also a very politically active young woman here in the Bay Area will also come on. Um, but I'm still out there trying to uh, reach women and give them a platform to speak to the people. So should you have any suggestions or recommendations in that regard, b.gets at upfullife.com. For any and all comments on the Up for Life podcast, please send them there or Please send me a message if you know, put someone on my radar that I should check out. Um, which brings me to today. Now, this isn't some affirmative action shit, you know. These women are doing it and doing it well on their own terms. And uh, I'm kind of doing a little combination. I have two shorter interviews, about 40 minutes each. Um, two shorter interviews today that I'm going to run with two uh, powerful, inspirational uh, Latino women. Uh, unrelated to one another other than the fact that they happen to be my friends and um, and are Latina women that I uh, commiserate with personally, professionally, otherwise. So the first is a talented singer, songwriter, conguero, um, percussionist, Ms. Maitiana Morales, who was out here uh, doing double duty with her main band, Pimps of Joy Time, fantastic Brooklyn-based sort of electro-funk syndicate uh, who I just published a story on Live for Life Music about. And Miss Maitiana Morales is out here also performing with her own project called Walk Talk, which includes Pimp's bassist David Bailis. And uh, I've had a bit of a role with them on a promotional level creating their electronic press kit and as such have become a fan of Walk Talk quite a bit as well and they are doing a short run out here in California or were and so my partner Leisha and I were lucky to go check out Walk Talk together and then we brought my mom to the Pimps of Joy Time show a week later uh, the latter of which is what the article's about and on the afternoon of the Walk Talk show in Berkeley um, I was able to track down Ms. Morales, as she traveled from the East Coast out here to California. She had band practice in the middle of the day, but she was kind enough to give us an opportunity to rap for what turned out to be about 40 minutes. Now, uh, I met her near her band practice. We tried a coffee shop. It didn't really work out. We ended up sitting down outside. The sound is pretty good. 
Um, you hear some cars driving by and a little bit of traffic, life, as she put it. So it's not the ideal recording environment, but it was really uh, a real talk, as they say, real talk. We sat down and we chopped it up about a variety of topics, uh, her musical path, her personal path, her heritage, her trip to Cuba, um, also what it's like to be uh, female in a male-dominated industry like uh, the music game, and uh, talked about her various projects and journey with Pimps of Joy Time and the evolution of that band and how Walk Talk came together, among other things. We also check in about the evolution of Brooklyn as a borough and New York City music culture then and now, and a few other topics that you'll have to listen in to hear. So that is my uh, interview with Miss Maytiana Morales of Pimps of Joy Time, so we'll play that up next after a bit of music from Walk Talk. And then after that, we're going to follow it up with an interview with one of my best friends in the whole world, Miss Maria Herrera, um, on the topic of legal cannabis and the evolution of that industry from the front lines of the small farmers of Nevada County in Northern California. So really two fascinating uh, interviews with two fascinating Latina women about two or more quite fascinating topics. With that, I'm going to play a little walk talk, and then we'll get to a powwow with Maytiana Morales. You're listening to the Upful Life Podcast, and I'm your host, B. Getz. to the Up for Life podcast. I'm your host, B. Getz, and I'm lucky this afternoon to be sitting out here uh, in downtown Oakland or just outside of downtown Oakland with Maytiana Morales of Pimps of Joy Time and Walk Talk, among other varied projects through the years. So thank you for making some time. Yeah, man, it's good to be here. Thank you for having me. <laughs> yeah, well, I was really excited when I saw that you had booked some dates with Walk Talk out here. Mm. Uh, I just want to say before we get started, we're sitting in a rather quasi-noisy area, some trucks, some traffic. Um, it's kind of the time frame that we have and where we are. So we're going to do our best here. Uh, listeners out there, please bear with us if you hear some rumbling trucks coming by or traffic. 
It's like life. It's never perfect. Indeed. Indeed. <laughs> but so we were saying uh, you're out here because Walk Talk is playing a short run out here on the West Coast. Yep. Most people know you uh, from Pimps of Joy Time, but Walk Talk's kind of like a new project that you embarked with a member of Pimps, right? Yep. Tell us yep. about Walk Talk. Um, so Dave and I, were, you know, we've been playing together for... 10 years and in that time we branched off and we did other gigs we used to have a an 80s band called stereo fights and we played for like nine months we had a weekly gig in brooklyn and um and we just like always gravitated you know to to playing music together because um we just have that connection that chemistry um, musically and so i had these demos like that I've accumulated for about 10 years and I was like I need to do something creative because as much as I love playing with the pimps I'm not creating in that band and I need to do this for myself so so because I don't play a melodic instrument Dave you know like he's a chord person he's the chord man I like to think you know for those listening at home it's David Bialis? Oh, Bayless Bayless right? Bayless okay. Dave, Dave Bayless DB he has a trio called DB3, and he just put out his album in July, right? Uh, Twenty eighteen. So, um, so yeah, we started working on these tunes, and um, and then they became what they are now. We just finished our first album. Uh, it will be released hopefully in the spring if everything goes well. And um, yeah, so we're out here just trying to spread the the music first, and also get better at playing these songs because there's a lot going on. In the arrangements right on so what is, what are the the instrumentation or what is the instrumentation for walk talk so dave plays guitar i play percussion and sing uh we have bass keys and drums cool so you'll yeah. be a five piece tonight yeah the, and they're yeah. playing the starry plow in Stay. berkeley yeah have you ever played that room before first time right on. yeah 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 well, i'm excited to have you out here excited to hear you uh in another uh or, you know, another group besides Thanks. the Pimps, but I, of course, love the Pimps. Me too. And, <laughs> and you guys are about to do gigs out here. Or is, is, yep. the, is the Bay Area gig part of a greater tour? Um, so, yeah, we're, we're going to be in... Uh, no, we just have two gigs with Pimps. So we're doing uh, Oakland, New Parish, on Thursday, uh, Friday, and then Saturday we head out to Lake Tahoe for Crystal Bay. And right then, then we're back to Walk Talk for... LA and St. Elsinore I've never heard of but that's where we're playing on the 17th Mint is the 18th yeah Mint's cool That'd I like the Mint it's been a while too and I have some friends in LA so I'll get to see them and yeah it's gonna be a fun night right on yeah so um, I want to talk about the pimps and some other stuff that I mentioned but I not everybody's familiar with every guest that I have on the show and yeah. it's kind of random I've had performance artist from New Orleans, a permaculture educator, and now you in three in succession. So yeah. for those that don't know, maybe tell people a little bit about your history. Where what, where do you call home? Where did you come up? And, and how music became you know, a force of nature in your life? Yeah. Well, I was going to school for theater. I thought, like, I'm going to act. I'm going to dance. I'm going to sing. So I went to musical theater school, and I was like, this is, this is my path. And then I realized kind of shortly into that program that that wasn't my path because I didn't love musical theater as much as you know some other people did and I was like I love music though and that always gets me excited so um, it was my sophomore year I ended up living with my friend Tamar and Carla and we just listened to music a lot and dance we had dance parties in the living room 
and, and especially Tamar and I exchanged a lot of different artists and she introduced me to Nina Simone and Jeff Buckley and and I just kept falling more and more in love with music and wanting to develop singing. So um, by the end of 2003, I was like, okay, I'm going straight into music and we went, you know, like we joined our bands and, and gigged out and that was like the first time I was gigging, you know, so. I felt a lot more freedom in that because I felt very confined in musical theater because you had to sound a certain way, you had to, you know, there was a lot of boxes and I just don't like boxes. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. He doesn't like them either. Yeah. Well, we're definitely alive. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I was around quite a bit of theater. I went to performing at art summer camp as a kid. Yeah. And uh, I did go to a performing arts summer camp uh, as a kid, and it was around a lot of musical theater. So I understand what you mean. They're, they're like written roles, and there's sheet music for how the songs are sung. And it's kind of, there's very little room for interpretation or injecting yourself into the performance. Yeah. So um, you said you started gigging and performing. When did you figure out that you were nice on the percussion? Um. Well, I would start with tambourine and like maybe a little cowbell and then when Chauncey Yearwood was in the pimps and then he briefly left, I was, oh no, no, I think he had gone, he left at that point because Brian asked me, he was like, so are you down to play gongas? And I'm like, huh? No. Because <laughs> that was really intimidating for me and I didn't think I could do it um, at the time. And then he was like, no, you could do it. And I was like, okay, I'll give it a shot. So then over the years, you know, like slowly developing slap and all that, you know, like I still, I'm learning so much still. Um, I still feel like a beginner when I see an amazing percussionist. I'm like, wow. Because it's not my first instrument, you know, and, and I don't think it will ever be my first instrument. I, I can keep a rhythm and I can create rhythms, but it will never be. I want to develop singing more than I do my percussion. Um, but maybe that'll change, I don't know. I mean, I went to Cuba recently and I was like, I wanna learn, I didn't have the opportunity to take a lesson, but um, there's just something with singing that I just feel super connected to and, and expressive with that is different for me than playing percussion. Um, so yeah, but I, I love it as well. Right on, well it yeah. shows when you're playing and the energy you have up on the on stage. It's uh, contagious, infectious. And you look like you're having a lot of fun. I am. <laughs> I want to take a quick detour because you brought up Cuba. And uh, mm. so my mom went on a humanitarian mission there uh, shortly after they opened up the ability to yeah. travel freely. Yeah. And some friends of mine, professional peers, have been down there. And my mom just informed me she's going back for a second trip. Um, also, my former partner, Jill, who is a big friend of the show, is currently there. Okay. Um, and that's her family heritage. So I feel like in every corner of my life um, people are going to Cuba yeah. Um, yeah. talk about that because I don't I, obviously you have uh, you're not are you Cuban no, no. I'm half Puerto Rican half Salvadorian and El Salvadorian yeah. so it was more like a culture trip than like a heritage trip for you yeah but it gave me a very deep sense of pride to be Latina and um, and that's something that I'm, I've missed for a long time because we used to go regularly to El Salvador, and that connected me to my Salvadoran roots. But it's been since 2002, and, uh, and things just haven't been that great. My uncle passed away, and that's who we would stay with. And, um, and Puerto Rico is like 96, so that was even longer. 
and I'm closer to my mom's side. So, um, but going to Cuba, uh, man, it, it was lessons every day. You know, like I was there for the first week with my sister, but then the second week I was there by myself. So it was just a lot of reflection and observation, and um, I felt safe at all times. There's very little fear in Cuba. Um, people are very present because there's no Wi-Fi. I mean, you have to go to the park to get Wi-Fi. Right. So you'll see parks, you know, full of people on their phones. But everywhere else, you're walking around and, you know, people are saying hello. You know, like, my favorite was the dudes that, you know, were catcalling, but they were, they were like, hey, lady, where you from, lady? Right. <laughs> <laughs> I miss that. Um, but, yeah, it's like, you know, it's kind of stuck. They're not aware of the Me Too movement, you sure. know what I mean? So it's like... I, but I also never felt threatened, you know. I was Anytime ask, it was a different vibe with the totally, holler. It wasn't totally uh, different. aggressive. No, it wasn't aggressive. Um, you know, like they they would repeat themselves and like you know really try to get your attention. But I could just walk by and ignore them, and it was fine. It was right. all good. You know, I never felt threatened. I walked all kinds of hours of the night. You know, I was I was cool because. There's no guns, you know, like there's no drugs. It's just, just you know, there's other problems. Right. You know, economically, it's bad. Socially, I feel like they're ahead, you know. Really? Yeah, because, you know, they don't have that fear. You know, they, they're, they're very open and welcoming. I mean, of course, they have their social issues as well, but I just felt very at home and very welcome, you know. There's no borders between people. That's you know? awesome. It's a lot of tourism too, so you know there's a lot of interaction between different cultures happening a lot. And um, what were people's attitude, uh, Cubans' attitudes towards uh, Americans? I guess they saw you as a Latina before they saw you as an American. They didn't know all the time. They didn't okay. know. They they would guess Italian, Brazilian, French, you know, Russian, all kinds. But of unconditional not. good vibes, regardless of where yeah. the person might be from. Yeah, that's beautiful. Yeah, because you know. The, our perception of Cuba has been so distorted through, you know, mainstream media and mm -hmm. political relations. And, you know, I'm not learned enough on Me Castro either. regime to really have an opinion, <laughs> yeah. other than to say my grandparents uh, vacationed in Havana mm. uh, in the 40s and 30s. Okay. Then, or maybe even as late as the 50s, because my mom has some recollections of her folks going away down there. Um, it was kind of like a nightlife, uh, real culture mecca. That was supposedly before the embargo and everything. Right. That was like the highlight of Havana right. at that time. Yeah. And then, you know, everything changed. Sure. But um, How I about feel the like. Music? Oh, every day. Every day there's music out in the street and restaurants. You can go see, you know, some show. It's difficult to find what's happening, though. So it's a lot by chance, you know. I looked up a, a jazz club on Lonely Planet. I'm like, ah, I'll just go check out this jazz club called. Um, I don't remember, but it was near where I was staying, and it was some of the best stuff I've seen. You know, like the percussionist was insane. The drummer, that rhythm section. You posted just, something from one. Not of the, from that night. Okay. Um, but you know, I connected with the percussionist, and you know, like it didn't work out that we had a lesson, but you know, for the future, you know. But I, I was just so glad to have come across that, and then. When I approached that jazz club, I went to a bar that was like kind of outdoor, half indoor, half outdoor, and saw this awesome salsa band, you know? And I was just like, I could just walk anywhere and find something, you know? Like it's just very present and yeah, it's all really good. 
I mean, in my right. humble opinion, I, I felt moved by it because it's so authentic. You I was going to say, that was yeah. the word I was going to use, really authentic. It's authentic. It's in their blood. Yeah. And it hasn't been bastardized or affected mm -hmm. because they've protected their exposure to the rest of the world for so many years. And it's almost like a time capsule, yes. I would imagine, where it's un, undistorted from, you know, all the advancements in yeah. social media technology, all that stuff that has really sort of created this immediacy, immediacy culture. Yeah. And... I would also like to seek out something of that nature where sort of unaffected by all that and just the art and the culture, pure, authentic. Yes. So yeah. I, you're counting down the days till when you can return? Absolutely. Right. I mean, I was already plotting my return. You know, I was like, I have to go in March and, you know, talking to friends. My friend Mickey is a DJ and he's Cuban. He goes pretty often. And uh, we talked about doing something together down there, you know, I want to bring the band down there and uh, he wants to, de well, he has DJed there. So like, you know, we, we talked about um, Fabrica del Arte, you know this place? It's like a not. huge venue um, with art, all kinds of art. There's performance art, there's music, there's a music concert room, and then there's like this huge acoustic uh, concert space where they had like, you know, a string orchestra. And um, it's just really stimulating, you know. They say, you know, they compare it to Williamsburg, you know, it's very hip. Oh, really? Hipster, like, you know, and it's a scene, but it's not pretentious, you know. Like, people are just going and, you know, just hanging out and eating also really good food. Yeah. And they have, like, tapas style downstairs and mad good pina coladas. <laughs> that was my thing down there. I'm like, oh. And the you dancing, too, right? Lots of incredible dancing. Yeah, yeah, man. People are just, like in their bodies and like you know just feeling it That's not awesome. not thinking as as much you know when when you're in those environments i'm not saying it's bad to think you should right. <laughs> think things through at times but yeah it's just it's very it's very different and i really like the difference it made me appreciate you know just being with someone you know like having conversation i mean not that i don't but like it's just it's so consistent there you're like present you mean you're yeah like, you're not anywhere else but in that conversation yeah it's like going back in time yeah it really is i'd love to get down there you know yeah. alicia and i was actually talking about a trip to puerto rico and i maybe mean, oh. i'll have to say because i want to do some surfing i don't want to get sidetracked here but you know, that's <laughs> my thing is like we can go wherever but i'd like to ride some waves that's my first love and mm. anytime we're going to a place where there's water right away I'm like okay where are the surf breaks yeah but yeah Cuba is like <laughs> definitely on the list you know especially with my mom making a second pilgrimage if you will when is she going she is going in March oh actually. she's going in March yeah maybe we'll see if in it works <laughs> you guys would get along great oh know? that's awesome you really would okay um, she, she's also of the short do. You know, oh, yeah? yeah? You guys would be like little Twinsies. Bobsy twins, right? <laughs> and she loves to go out and dance and loves that music mm. and so forth. I wanted to ask about, with Walk Talk, and, and you mentioned your heritage, do you try to bring a Latin tinge to Walk Talk, or is that just something that happens naturally, or do you make it even a concerted effort not to bring it? I don't really intend to, like, make any kind of like cultural music I feel like I just make something that I'm feeling at the time but it's already entered my system because I was an Afrobeat band I'm Latina you know all these things already exist so when it's you know I'm creating something it's just like oh I'm feeling this rhythm you know so I'll make a little drum beat and you know that's how I create it's either like bass line or, or, or like a drum beat 
and and then I'll start creating like little melodies on top but like it's never like I'm gonna do a salsa tune right. or you know a salsa influence tune it's never that it's just like I, f I hear a rhythm you just create yeah and then stack and it might sound like something to someone or you know something else to someone else but I'm not really I'm not really uh, too concerned with that I just want to okay. like feel what I'm feeling you yeah. know what is the pro you described a process about when you're creating a song so that was in essence like how you make a demo yeah uh, you, the beat yeah and then maybe a bass line or a melody and then you sing maybe Do even some... like placement vocals over it or... oh yeah yeah I have like a whole melody you know like okay. melodies come very easily so I could just like you know do a whole song and have the whole structure, but I, lyrics will take me forever, unless right. I'm like very clear about the subject. And sometimes it's a little harder to create those, you know, the ideas and have it be, you know, sometimes I, I try to just simplify so that I don't get too heady with my words, you know, because then sure. you get stuck. And I don't want to be stuck. I just want it to flow and feel like people don't have to think too much either right. <laughs> you know yeah, yeah. I mean sometimes but like that's really not I don't want to be like yeah you listen to my words <laughs> you know right. like I just want to be honest Feel it. as honest as possible in the moment you know as eloquently said you know <laughs> um, you mentioned being an Afrobeat band yeah so how did that come to be? Oh, man, Akoya. So the first time I saw Akoya was in 99 at this place called No More in Antibalas. That was the first time I saw yeah. Antibalas, same spot. And um, and then Where I didn't... Where was it? Uh, no More in New York. It's okay. on Northmore, or was on Northmore in some street that I can't I remember. I made it there. It was super small. The night that I saw Antibalas, it was super packed, and I was, like, on the steps looking down at the band, yeah. and, you know, so... I didn't know Afrobeat. My friend was like, you have to, you know, you have to hear Fela Kuti and hear this band Antibalas. And I'm like, okay. And he played it for me. I was like, oh my God. You yep. know, like that, it just shifted something in me. And I was like, this is hypnotic. And I, I love to dance to it. Like, I feel like I know already how to move to it. I mean, not authentically, but my way. And um, yeah, so I just fell in love with that sound. And then... I think I knew this woman, Kemba Russell, who was in Okoya, and she was like, we're looking for a background singer. And she got me into the group, and I was I learned how to play shaker A. And, um, and it just kind of, you know, like we, we played for a year, so 2007, I think we joined, um, or I joined. And um, we're not like broken up, but we've just, everyone's doing so many right. different things because, you know, it's like 13 people. And... Um, but yeah, anytime we have an opportunity to play together, it's it's on, <laughs> you know. Yeah. It's interesting because uh, there was like a little revolution or explosion of sorts of Afrobeat music, mm -hmm. kind of on the back of Antibalas, at back in, around the turn of the millennium. I think I saw them for the first time about two years after you, but I was seeing them, uh, you know, when I really didn't have a frame of reference um, for Afrobeat or Fela or mm -hmm. anything, and. Um, they sort of kicked down that door and yes, uh, obviously studied hard on Fela and both bands, you know, mm -hmm. and Sons, Siun, and oh, yeah, Femi, yeah. and I've seen both of them live a few times, and of Same. course, Anibalas, Ikabe Shakedown, and it's really amazing to think about that culture and how it's been sort of reborn, Yeah, and you've been a part of that. Do you, do you feel like that that scene that we're kind of referencing from a few years back in New York, is it still alive and well, or has the Akoya thing kind of permeated every band but Antibalas, and everyone's doing different things? Because 
I think it just evolved, you know? Like, I think there's still... I see bands, like, outside of New York that are doing more Afrobeat than I do see them in New York now. Because, you know, like, it started so much more... It started in 98, 99. So I think it had time to evolve, you know, like, where people were perhaps feeling like, well, you know, this has to evolve. We right. can't keep recreating something that's, you know, like that already existed. And, but there's su such a, a, a strong foundation in Afrobeat, you know, like I love the structure of Afrobeat. I can understand it, like see it, yeah. you know, and so. The minimalism. Yeah, the minimalism and, and how all the parts fit together, like gears, you know, yeah. and I love that about rhythm. So. You know, to see a band like Rubble Bucket, the first time I saw them, they were way more straight Afrobeat. Right. And then they evolved into their own thing. And same with Underground System Afrobeat, or now they're just Underground System. Right. And they evolved too. And I just, I love to see, you know, someone take something, understand it, respect it, love it, and then make your own thing. Because, you know, it, Fela had a movement. And that was based on like politics and the, and the time, right? You know, and like that, you can't recreate that. No. You know, I mean, like people do it really well, you know, like, but it's, it's just something. something it's something else, you yeah. know. Like I love to see the evolution of, of music, you know, and I respect tradition. I definitely do. I just, I, it excites me to see evolution. Yeah, when it, especially when it's done respectfully yeah. and with reverence to the forefathers, if you will, or foremothers. Yeah. Um, you brought up the underground system, Afrobeat, and of course, Antibalas was originally Antibalas Afrobeat Orchestra. Right. So it's cool now that these bands can afford to, in essence, remove the training wheels from the general populace and just, this is us, yeah. not this is the type of band you need to expect when you show up. Yeah. You know, and yeah. I've just really been amazed by what, I, we just saw them at the Emerald Cup. It's like, uh, gotcha I know, I heard about here. this, yeah. And, you know, just seeing those guys up there. Um, all these years later, it's like, you know, Chico Man, Martin, a lot of the same cats still up there from when you saw them, when I saw yeah. them way back when. I mean, yeah. there's some changeover, guys come and go, but it's really amazing that they've been able to keep that together and continue to evolve, yet stay true. Yeah, and they kill, yeah. you know, they're so Their killing. Their show is unreal. Yeah, that music is undeniable, you know, you just yeah. can't help but get sucked in. Agreed. <laughs> um, I want to talk a little bit about... I do want to get to the pimps, but we were yeah. walking over here and I uh, was kind of going over the parameters of the podcast and stuff. Yeah. And one of the main themes that I tried to bring forth, no matter what uh, we're talking about, is kind of ad overcoming adversity or inspiring people or how you found inspiration yourself. And I feel like you're really uh, at the forefront of women in the music culture that I'm privy to mm. doing things and like getting yourself out there. Um, in an industry and in a culture that, despite what we want to tell ourselves, is so male-dominated. I mean, I look at my own situation with this podcast, and you look at the ratio between guests, and it's out of whack, mm -hmm. you know? And that's obviously uh, a big reason why I wanted to have you on, but it's not about affirmative action. I'm just trying to have women on because they're women, I'm looking for women that have something to offer. And obviously, you know, you came to mind, and you happen to be here. I want to hear about your path as somebody um, working artist working musician female in this industry you know do you feel like we're trending in the right direction um, maybe you want to share some bullshit you had to deal with <laughs> or maybe you want to share uh, the opposite where you know you're yeah. pleasantly surprised 
Well, I think um, it's it's all mixed, you know. Um, I would say that when I I first started, I was definitely more intimidated just because I was surrounded by mostly guys, you know. Like I, I had a a nice support system with Hagar when I first joined Pimps because she was the other female, you know, and we we developed our friendship and bond because of you know our gender and, and to be able to express ourselves in ways that we couldn't really express ourselves or felt comfortable expressing ourselves with other band members or not that we couldn't it was just more comfortable you know because there was an understanding but um i i i liked you know being surrounded by by men in terms of how you know, like I'm an observer, so I, w I would kind of take in, okay, how, how are they doing things? You know, learning from these experiences and sometimes not enjoying being treated certain ways, you know, because I'm a female or because I was younger and inexperienced and, you know, but like taking it all in and, and saying, you know, okay, what can I, how can I transform this into something that's beneficial for my, you know, my trajectory? And, um, and so it, it's taught me a lot of, strength really were to hold my space amongst a lot of men you know but I'm also used to that because my brothers you know so that helped me prepare for the music situations um, but yeah it, sometimes it was unpleasant you know to just to, to be spoken to in certain ways because like I don't read music I didn't go to music school I play by ear you know like I'm a singer you know to, to be treated as if um, I don't understand and, and even if I don't understand there's you know things I can be explained to in a respectful you get there you get to that point where you you learn you know and then you earn respect and uh, yeah and then you you're able to communicate music in a different way because you've had that experience and I still can't tell you you know keys sometimes right. <laughs> I don't have perfect pitch you know um, but are you treated do you feel like uh, because of your accomplishments and you've kind of like earned your your cachet at this point, do you feel like maybe you're tr you're not taken advantage of, you're not uh, treated as green or naive or any of that? Have it's you noticed changed. a change? Definitely, yeah. definitely. And um, I appreciate that, you know, yeah. because I, you know, I, I want to focus on just music. I don't want to focus on the emotional, you know, life, you know, if you're not being respected or treating well or treated well or working with people that have bad vibes, you know, like I'm done with that, you know, right. so now it's forward and everyone's on the same, you know, we can see eye to eye and um, everyone knows where everyone stands right. and, and respects that. So, um, yeah, I, I also like to choose the right people that I work with, you know, because, um, yeah, it's just, it's it's already hard enough, you know, sure. we should make it easier for everybody, you know. I would hope so. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> well, I feel like there's a wave, um, just speaking in the present tense, there's a wave of very powerful women mm -hmm. making music in this sort of extended world that goes from festivals to jazz fests to New York City to Denver to the Bay. Yeah. I mean, yourself, your bandmate Kim Dawson, who's mm -hmm. in two bands like yourself, and so is her bandmate Adrian. Yeah. You got Jen Hartswick, who's in like a million bands, <laughs> Natalie, Holly Bowling on the piano. There are just all these amazing women artists on the come up. Mm -hmm. And one of my intentions for 2019 was to like shine a light. Yeah. I know another journalist uh, from Music Fest News named Dahlia who shared with me at Halloween that that was her focus moving forward mm -hmm. was to be sure to 
you know, cover women and uh, show women out there doing the damn thing. So yeah. not to steal her thunder, but I'm on that same mission. <laughs> and uh, I just, at the same time, don't want to portray something like in an affirmative action sense where you're just getting the coverage or the attention because you're a woman. And yep. I'm not feeling bad. I'm just recognizing that you guys are out there doing it. And the deck is, unfortunately, still somewhat stacked against you. So you need all the shine you can get so that's that's why I'm here and I hope that other journalists and other mediums feel similarly because there's no shortage of women doing it but there is a shortage of attention yes so that's yes. something we got to work on that's so true yeah. yeah and it's funny I was just seeing a, a band recently my friend was like there's so many dudes there's <laughs> so many dudes on stage I was like yeah. There's a lot of dudes, yeah. but in general, there's so many dudes and there's so the many women too. in the audience. Um, but there's so many women killing it, you know. Yeah. Like, I think they deserve the opportunity, you know, yeah. as well. Um, not because they're women, but because they're fucking good, yeah. you know. The art speaks Excuse for itself. Me. <laughs> yeah. it's a good, passionate word. <laughs> Thanks for that uh, thoughtful response. Cause <laughs> it's kind of dicey even to ask that, and you don't want to put someone in a position where. They're not comfortable, but yeah. it's important for me to you know let the guests know and also let the listeners know that right. this is going to be a thing. We're going to be hearing from women, and not just because they're women, but it is a intention. Yes, for the podcast and just in general. So I'll take that right on. <laughs> Hopefully, we can talk to Kim moving forward. Yeah, and I would love to. You know, her and I have always had a good, if brief, rapport, and yeah. she's doing amazing stuff too. She is. Let's 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 talk about the pimps then, because Kim is your bandmate. The pimps you reference. Hi, Oh, I did not know that. Yeah, yeah. She's with Matador Soul Sounds. Full time? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Right on. So she won't be with you next week. She won't be with us. Right, right. Okay. Yeah. Is that a recent development? That was just December. No, when was that? I want to say the last time I saw the pimps, she was in the band, but that was maybe a year ago. It was, I think, uh, September. Okay. Was it that... September. Yeah, I think it was September, October or something. So Matador's yeah. busy enough where she left to do that full time. I think so, cool. yeah. yeah. Right on. But you'll Good talk to her. You'll I will. get her, I her story. <laughs> Usually I'm in front of these things. I, you know, try not to be yeah. embarrassed that I didn't no, know. No, it's all good. So are you now the lone female in the pimps? Yeah. At the yeah. moment, is that a first? Was there ever a time when there was not another woman in the band? Yeah. Um, I was with Chauncey, uh, this bass player, Clark Dark, um, Bolivar. And Eric Boulevard. Sure. Um, yeah, and Brian Who's from here. People know him yeah. from New Orleans, yeah, yeah. but he's actually a Bay Area guy. Yeah. yeah. I know. You we would talk Eric. about the traffic all the time. <laughs> like, no, no, we got to leave earlier. <laughs> right on. Yeah. But, um, no, so it's not the first time. Okay. Yeah, but it's been the first time in a long time. And um, But I'm in a different place now where, you know, I just, I can hold my space and not feel... You know, right I, I know these dudes. Right. right. <laughs> so when did you start working with uh, Pimps? And at that time, is it basically like Brian's thing? Yeah, yeah. He okay. started a band in right. 2005, 2006, and he would play this bar called Stinger Club, Stinger Bar in uh, Williamsburg. And uh, yeah, Chauncey was in the group. Hagar was in the group. The first drummer, I think, was uh, Marcus Ferrar, who's an Antibalis, um, who's an amazing singer as well. And, uh, yeah. Oh, so, okay. So I first saw the pimps at BPM in Williamsburg. It was a really dope spot. It was, like, run by Yoshio Drummer from Okoya. Ten minutes. We have, I mean, we have more time. Come on. 
I know the drummer's gonna get there at 4.30, so. Okay. Um, so yeah. Um, oh, so I first saw the pimps, I was playing with Chico Man yeah. at the time. And I was also in Okoya. But I, that- My managed Chico Man. Who? Rob, Robbie Krevlin. I don't know him. It was years ago. Okay. But yeah, he was there for a long time. Okay, maybe I had to meet him, I don't know. <laughs> but anyway, so I was with Okoya, but that night, was playing with Chico Man. Chico Man was opening up for pimps and I'd never seen them before. And I've heard of Brian J and I think I was, you know, we passed, you know, we crossed paths. Um, but then I saw the band, I was like, I think I was high, you know, I was just like, what is this? I looked over at my friend, we both were like, <laughs> you know, looking at each other with an amazement. And um, yeah, and, and so then it was shortly after that, that was, that was November or December of 06, no, 07. And so January 08, Brian J hit me up and he was like, uh, I'd like to talk to you about you joining the band. So we went to a Salvadoran restaurant in Williamsburg called Bahia. And he was like, do you want to join the band? Would you be willing to learn um, the sampler, Ableton? And are you willing to tour? He asked me those three questions and I'm like, yep. <laughs> All three, yes, you know, like I, that's what I want to do, and and I was definitely intimidated by the Ableton part, but I was like, fuck it, I, you know, I've learned things in right. my life, <laughs> you know, so I, I got the opportunity to, you know, experience that part. Um, I don't miss it, <laughs> but I got, you know, time with it, and uh, that's how it started, and you know, we we were doing it for a long time, you know, like still doing it. But the touring was amazing. I love travel. That's why, like, one of the reasons why I love music and playing is traveling, seeing new places. You know, it's just, it's yeah. a dream. <laughs> yeah. It can be a grind, but when, yeah, you know, when you're in the right space and mm -hmm. people are doing their jobs and you're getting where you're going on time, I'm sure it's amazing. It wasn't all smooth. Right. <laughs> That's for sure. Right. Yeah, but, you know, you learn a lot because... You learn about yourself, you learn, you know, you're in close proximity to these people, you know, you're just like, oh, I got a lot of shit to learn, <laughs> you know, yeah. it's, it's, it's helpful. I grew up a lot in this band, in Pimps, you know, being on the road and finding myself, too. That's awesome. Losing fear. Oh, man, I remember, like, like, being, I, I remember feeling my ego, you know what I mean? Like, because I was so insecure at times, you know, like feeling like I had to have it as a shield, like I'm doing this thing, you know, and uh, and then like not being totally connected, you know, like on stage. And I'm like, ah, oh, that's not that's not the way to go. And so I had to learn to like really be in the moment, you know, and enjoy, like listen, listen to the music you know and uh, not worry about performing because that's also part of you know theater that that was my background right. so i'm like oh, i have to perform but you don't have to perform so you can almost like that unlearn way. that yeah internally yeah and then you could actually break through whatever was this fear between fear it's fear right you know so i had to lose a lot of that and still learning that you know that's like a goal i you know like nina simone she's like I forgot her answer was no fear you know like I, I don't remember the question but I always think that that rings in my head a lot no fear you know because it just gets in the way of everything you know everything that you want to do everything you want to express especially you know if you're gonna be doing music 
you know you have so much to break through yeah you know and um yeah that shit just gets in the way yeah. yeah, I feel like it's a process that maybe every artist has to go yeah, through, and some definitely. never make it through, and some easily in the band anymore. Is nope. It just instrumentation at this yep. point. I love it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's funny because I've been seeing the Pimps for years, like here and there, Bear Creek uh, when I lived in Florida, and also in New York when I lived in Philly. Yeah. Um, but uh, I had like the breakthrough with you guys when John Staten played. Yeah. Is he still in the band? No. He's not. Anthony okay. Cole is playing drums okay. now. I cool. love, I miss John, but yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> I know him from his time with Denson. Because mm -hmm. I, I still love Denson, but uh, there was a time where I would like go on little runs with them and follow them for five cities at a time. Wow. I mean, I loved them for years. The, old, the original band, and Brian Jordan on guitar. Oh, yeah. I love the current band. I don't want to misspeak, misspeak yeah, yeah, but yeah. then it was a different time in my life, and I was just after it. And, uh, so John was young and green and came from Carlos, Wall Carlos Washington's Giant People, which is a San Diego band that he was in. Okay. Carlos was at one time in Carl's band, and so Carl was hip to John, and uh -huh. Zach Major was the drummer at the time. He decided to leave, so Carl reached down for Carlos, or for uh, John for out of Carlos's band, and yeah. I kind of just watched John's career since then, and then obviously left Carl's band, I didn't hear from him for a bit, and then he resurfaced with you guys, and then it was that lightning in the bottle, uh, yeah. playing that, like... <laughs> uh, it's like a frontier town that mm -hmm. was made to look like 1849 and yep. everyone's period specific, everything. And watching <laughs> him in that environment was incredible, you know, that just because he was so festival. bewildered by like, damn, you know, I'll do it big out here. And, like, <laughs> and it was the first time I'd seen him in a while. So he's powerful. Yeah, yeah. He's an incredible player and person. Yes. Human. Yes. He's very sweet. Tell me about Anthony Cole. I haven't heard him. He is one of the most like musical people I know, you know, like. I learned so much from him because he's just always humming and singing and like, you know, introducing me to new artists that I've never fucking heard of. And then, you know, when you play with him, he's super dynamic and he he's so sensitive to everything that happens that like, okay, we're going here, we're going here, you know, and it's just a journey now because it's difficult. I think, it, you know, it's hard for drummers to play to a sampler because you're just you're stuck there right. you know even though you know some John did it really well you know like he's just some drummers don't do it as well you know like but he was just so good at that and um but with Anthony it's just a different it's a different thing you know it's a different animal and um does the music sound like tangibly different uh, yes okay. it does it, it's um it's it's quieter at times and then you know like it just it has more dynamic because we're not stuck to the sampler. That was the big thing. Right. I think with the sampler, you're just going in this one direction. You can't veer away from it because you're yeah. you're playing to a machine. So with with without it, now it's just a lot of ebb and flow and in a lot of um, more unpredictable moments. Yeah, improv. Improv. Yeah. I but love that. To my recollection, the sampler and that element of technology was a core element of to pimps sound. totally so it's funny because we just talked about this i haven't aired it yet but i had earlier this week thievery corporation playing two nights in san francisco and went there for new year's and i was lucky i got jeff frank Congo sanchez the drummer of oh, thievery yeah. to come on the podcast and yeah. he was talking about exactly what you were saying playing to a sampler and how you know the pros and cons and how it inhibited the music and they actually over time have removed a lot of that from the live performance even though thievery is an electronic right group right um, so this is almost similar, you know. Uh, I wouldn't have said of that about pimps that they're a quote electronic group, but the sampler was essential to the DNA of the sound. Yeah. Um, 
And it was a gradual process, I imagine. You became less and less reliant on it until one day, one of you guys was probably like, we don't need that shit. Right? <laughs> yeah, well, I think that was Brian's decision to be like, I want to go back to basics and I want to go back to having more freedom and more dynamic. And, you know, it was just, I think that's just what his journey is. And even in listening to Gitkin, his own solo project, um, it's all instrumentation and it's like, it's great. You have to check that his band out, too. I would too. love to. Um, I was going to ask what he does outside of Pimps. Because I know he does oh, the yeah. whip every year in New Orleans. But other than that, I've never really seen him outside of the Pimps paradigm. Well, he produced the Bernard Purdy album uh, recently. He does, you know, he, he produces right. quite a bit. Okay. Uh, he also plays with Cedric Burnside. Um, he plays drums in a duo blues, like country blues band with him. And they do some touring. And, um, yeah, he's been really, I think, developing Gitkin a lot. Uh, recently and uh, yeah living his life right <laughs> yeah. where's, where's home for him between New, New Orleans and New York okay. yeah and you're still in Brooklyn I'm still in Brooklyn right been on. in my place for 13 years in Greenpoint well, I'm sure the neighborhood's changed oh yeah yeah you see the bars pop up yeah. you know people getting noisy <laughs> yeah. but uh yeah that's great that you've been able to keep roots there no matter where all your travels you're talking about touring and all these places you go and yeah. it's awesome but you have the same place it's rare for musicians if they don't own the home yeah. to call the same place home for 13 years so yeah. that's got to be grounding in a sense and keep you a New Yorker no matter where you go wherever Absolutely. you may roam if you will and I had moments where I was like I want to move to California I want to move to New Orleans I mean I still want to move to New Orleans but you know like I was just so done with New York but then I had the opportunity to tour and and that gave me exposure to other places and then I started thinking okay I like to visit these places and then like going back home right you know so it just it was nice it was a nice balance for me you know when you hear people talk about the old New York and not the New York of like the pre Giuliani era but New York like when we're talking about with the knitting factory and the wetlands and when Auntie Ballas is coming of age and really sort of downtown and Brooklyn, New York music scene of 12, 15 years ago. Is there still a vibrant thing? It might not be the same bands but, or artists, but is there? does that exist in New York in 2019? I think so. I think, you know, people have gotten so creative and, you know, there's so many bands now that are, you know, friends that are doing these really unique things and I think New York provides that environment for you know new sounds because it just moves so fast you know everything's moving fast so I think you know creatively you know these musicians are moving fast in you know sounds and, and trying different things you know and and having the support system to be able to because I think you know, um, sometimes I'll be in certain environments and people want to hear one thing you know what's familiar right but it's not like that in new york people are really really allowed to hear something different you know or take a chance take a chance yeah right. and we kind of like want that too it's like yeah. excuse me but like we want to hear you know like that new shit. Right. <laughs> but how about yeah. venue wise are the venues oh. still there well i mean because mm. i know the art's being made and gotcha. i'd like to think as you described because i don't live there but yeah. uh, that it's being supported but i just from the outside looking in, it just seems like more rooms closed than open. That's true. It, I mean, like that, uh, we lost Zebulon, we lost Rose Live Music, which is now St. Maisie's. It's cool, but Rose was really special for us. 
Um, Even a place like Output, just clubs, like Dance oh, Music yeah. Club, that's kind of legendary in another world. Yeah, I mean, right. but that's that. The symbolism of that is not lost on me. Yeah. You know? And then before that was like American Beauty, which was a beloved jam band oh, spot, and yeah. then Sullivan Hall and so forth. It just seems like one after another, they're just shutting the doors. And I don't know that doors are opening. So where can people really go to hear that avant-garde new shit, if you will? One place we played recently was Our Wicked Lady, and Our Wicked Lady seems to have great acts. I, I, I don't know venues well enough to say like, Oh, this is the spot to go to. Um, oh, well, Come On Everybody has been a home to a lot of musicians. And and Eric Sosa is the owner, and he takes really good care of his musicians. He cares about music. So it, it developed, you know, into this home. And uh, that place, for sure, is one of the places that, you know, people speak of a lot or play at a lot. And um, it's very diverse musically. Yeah. Okay. Um, Baby's Alright is also another one. Um, Rockwood, I mean, yeah. It, it's definitely diverse, but, it, you know, I always have a problem with that they don't pay. <laughs> oh, <that's> <laughs> you know, a that's a problem, you know, throughout the city. It's hard for musicians yeah. just to make a living, you know. Like, yeah. we, we need more places, you know, that, that pay <laughs> right. just to be able to play, you know. But... You know, we work it out, and, and, and we, we play for love, too, so, right. you know. And at the end of the day, if enough people want to see you, somebody's going to pay to have you play. Yes. But it just seems like it's a bit of a different landscape than I remember when yeah. I would take the train up from Philly, and in 72 hours, I have gone to seven venues and seen five different groups and blah, blah, blah. You know, it was also, like, what I do, and, like... I didn't have a relationship or a job outside of the writing. So my singular focus was like, how much music can I see in my three days in New York? Yeah, you know? gotcha. So I'd be at the 5-5 five five bar, I'd be at the Knit, I'd be at Hammerstein, all these different places. Yeah. Some still open, some not. Yeah. But that just seems like a New York that doesn't exist anymore. So I wanted to ask someone that's lived there for 13 years, yeah. am I mistaken? It sounds like somewhat. Yeah, there's places. And there's like always shows, <laughs> you right. know? Sometimes yeah. I'm just like, I'm going to stay home yeah. <laughs> just to not, you know, be conflicted about where to go. But yeah, I, I think I think you definitely, you know, I mean, it's, it's probably not the same. It's never right. the same, but there's always something coming up that's new. And yeah, I, I really dig the places that are open now and hopefully they stay open. Right. That's well, you got to keep going there and spending yeah. money there and yeah. telling people about it, mm -hmm. playing the gigs. You got to hope that. It works, but uh, yeah. hopefully people hear this podcast, and maybe if they're in New York City and they're looking for something to do, they'll look up Come On Everybody or Babies. I hope so. Babies All Right. Babies All Right. Yeah. Williamsburg and Come On Everybody is in Bed-Stuy. Cool. Yeah. Uh, right yeah. on. Well, yeah, you talk about new things, uh, which maybe bring it on home now, and mm -hmm. uh, you mentioned uh, you're playing the gig with Walk Talk 2 gigs. Yeah. Uh, well, three. Three. Yeah. Okay. Um, and the album is coming this spring. Do you have a title for it yet? Hello, hello. Hello, hello. Like the single. Yep. Awesome. Exactly. I saw your EPK. It looks great. Oh, thank you. <laughs> right so on. Uh, B, B makes an awesome EPK. If oh, y'all right. need. <laughs> right on. Thank you very much. Yeah, you hooked it up. Thank uh, you. I appreciate you having the faith in me. Yeah, Lord. Hopefully, uh, you can do more stuff in the future. I'm, I'm happy to lend my hand to any projects that you're involved in. Appreciate it. I'm really grateful that you took some time out of your day. Um, we got to get you back to band practice. <laughs> Nine-minute walk, so yeah, I'm going to wrap it up. And let me say thank you. Thank you. And we look forward to the show tonight. And I'll be sure to, uh, you know, 
paint the town with all the walk talk stuff we put in front of me. So thanks, dude. I want to see you win. Thank you. Right yeah, on. yeah. Well, this has been the Upful Life podcast, coming to you live and direct from Oakland, California, um, with Miss Matiana Morales of Walk Talk and Pimps of Joy Time. We appreciate you tuning in, and we'll see you next time. Yes, indeedy. That was the lovely and talented Miss Matiana Morales of Walk Talk and Pimps of Joy Time. And it is the latter, the Pimps of Joy Time, that you're hearing in the background right now. That's one of their best and funkiest jams called Jankster Funk. And they played a dynamite show at the New Parish in Oakland on a Saturday night, brought my mom down there, and uh, yeah, it was an amazing show. We had a great time, I did an article on it for Live for Life Music, and uh, something I wanted to address, and I wasn't sure whether or not I was going to do it, and I feel like I owe it to myself and to my mom to at least bring it up. And I didn't want to do it before uh, Maytiana's interview as to bring any negativity to the airwaves. But I think it's necessary that I just express these thoughts. Uh, we arrived at the show, and my mom, she's no newcomer. I mean, she's in her 70s, but she goes to Jazz Fest every year, and she goes to night shows all the time without me. Lettuce, Carl D., back in Philly. She's out here visiting right now um, in California. And wanted to go out to some shows, so we took her to Robert Walter, who played an amazing show uh, with the 20th Congress at the Independent, um, Simon Lott on drums, that was a great gig. But the night before, excuse me, so the Pimp show was on Friday night, and the Robert Walter show was on Saturday. So on Friday night, we took my mom to the new parish in Oakland, and uh, we made our way up the stairs and took a position kind of above the band on the balcony in the second story. And uh, I don't really know how to say it other than the fact that this fella uh, to our left uh, thought 
it would be appropriate to thrash wildly around and bump into my mom and by proxy bump into me because I began to stand in front of, in between my mom and this guy who was dancing with a girl and they were, uh, you know, clearly intoxicated, but that's not the issue here, really. Um, we've all imbibed, imbibed a time or two too much at a show. Um, but uh, what this dude was doing was so above and beyond what is cool or appropriate or acceptable. Forget the fact that my mom was mere inches away in a packed club where everyone else might have been even dancing spastically but was respecting one another's personal space and there was a great vibe in the room everywhere else but this little area where my mom was scrunched up against the rail trying to avoid this bro who was just out of control so I stood between him and her for as long as I could take it probably like three songs where he was deliberately at this point uh, throwing his backside and arms into me and you know I did my best to brace myself not to hit my mom now a lot of you don't know or most of you listening don't know that my mom who's in her 70s has a pretty serious back condition and um, not just your average bad back I'm talking clinical degenerative disc disease over the course of 30 plus years and uh, basically you know just sort of like grins and bears it or for a while was heavily medicated, now has transitioned considerably to CBD and cannabis-based uh, treatments. Um, but that's not the point. The point is she was, you know, kind of in danger of getting fucked up by this dude. And, and he's like built like a linebacker. I mean, I'm 6'2", a buck three soaking wet. This dude was built like a linebacker. Every time he banged into me, I, you know, kind of flew into my mom gently the best I could and uh long story short is finally I, I couldn't I had no choice but to confront this dude who when he turned around and looked at me and had pupil saucer pupils um I recognized what time it was and he really wasn't making a whole lot of sense he said that he warned my mom he had the audacity to say I shouldn't bring my mom with a bad back to the front row of a, quote, mosh pit. Now, bear in mind, we're at a Pimps of Joy time show in Oakland. Um, there was no moshing. This was no mosh pit. But he looked me in the eye and said that. And um, I was, of course, my mom was there. And uh, I'm not a guy that's really going to throw hands over anything, but... I was as close as I'd ever been because the dude was straight up threatening the safety of my mom. Forget infringing on her ability to enjoy the show. She could have been hurt because um, this dude was throwing himself around. Um, so him and his lady decided to get really loud with me and say that I was out of line. How dare I allow my mom to steal their spot uh, for dancing slash moshing. Um, I'm not going to make any generalizations about who they were or what they were. I could just recognize what was up, and uh, I was pretty close to losing my cool. So my mom didn't want to bounce because she, you know, pimps had put us on the list, and she was fucking stoked to get down and boogie in Oaktown to some funk, and she wasn't 
gonna just bounce from that spot. But cooler heads prevailed, thanks to my partner, Alicia, and myself, and I peeled my mom out of that situation, and we just relocated, and it was hard to shake off just how bad that sucked, um, and explain to my mom why another generation thinks that that's acceptable behavior. And I was not just going to blame it on the fact that the dude was fucked up. Because I've been fucked up, and so have many of you listening. And 99 out of 100 of us would not behave like this dude did. And, uh, you know, we carried it for a while during the show and tried to shake it off a few times. I should add, I'm doing a dry January, so it wasn't even like I could have a drink to settle my nerves. Um, although, again, I was close, but... Uh, managed to stay the course um my, my friend lisa from atlanta materialized at some point that evening and gifted me a funkcity.net hat from jake and in the atl so uh i was like you know in a great mood and super stoked except i had just gone through this quasi-traumatic experience where a dude who could literally break me over his knee and was doing his best to do that <laughs> Um, had basically like aggressively confronted my mom and I at a show. Um, so yeah, um, I just wanted to tell this story just to say um, that that shit's not cool. And uh, if you're at a show and you see something out of line, um, you should do something or say something. I'm not talking about like telling on people because you see someone doing nose beers in the stall. I'm talking about when uh, anybody, but particularly a woman that's older than most, if not anyone else in the venue, is you know, put in that situation. Um, I was disappointed that other folks in close vicinity didn't step up and tell this dude to get lost. But um, it was just a shitty thing. And I don't want to bring negative vibes. It has nothing to do with the pimps of joy time. They don't welcome that sort of behavior sure as hell don't consider themselves a mosh pit band for that i am certain so this has nothing to do with them and that's why i didn't want to talk about it before matiana's interview which was phenomenal and fascinating and engaging and all of the things and so was most of the evening at the pimps of joy time show at the new parish however i needed to address that unfortunate occurrence while it was still fresh on my mind and Encourage everybody out there to just look out for each other and love one another and respect one another. And look, you want to talk about spastic dancing, there is no guiltier party than yours truly. And in years past, when I was younger and had field hockey sticks for dreadlocks and maybe was a little less uh, swift on my feet or quite possibly intoxicated um, in the wrong kind of way, um, I may have bumped into you a time or two. I'm almost certain I said pardon me, and I sure as hell didn't physically threaten and aggressively encroach on your 70-something-year-old mother. So, like I said, and I'll drop it, look out for each other, love one another, respect each other on the dance floor and everywhere else, because life's just way much cooler that way.
I needed to take a breather there. Um, I want to say thanks to everybody bearing with me for that diatribe. Um, I needed to take a breather, step out, have a spliff, and sort of seg into uh, something that brings me great joy and pride. So I had to lace up a little bit of the most recent lettuce from their nugs.net page because we're going to talk about one of my dearest and most treasured friends in the whole wide world Miss Maria Herrera my next guest Maria is a lot of things but first and foremost she is a trusted and loyal and incredible friend and human Um, we randomly were camped near each other at Bear Creek I want to say 2009 or 10 and uh, I was telling some story about when you're going to egg somebody's car in traffic it required a soft toss of the egg she found that rather humorous and a conversation and later a friendship was born Maria and I, she lived in South Florida. I lived up uh, Jack's Beach on the coast on the north side. We only hung out really at festivals and kept in touch on the phone or social media. At a rather low point in my life when I'd moved back to Philly, care for my ailing father, she uh, convinced me to come out to Burning Man, assured me that it was the medicine I needed. And that's an episode for another time, but... I did indeed do that, and it was indeed the medicine. And uh, We went from hardly hanging out, but being good friends, to living together amongst a bunch of other people, and uh, a chapter in this adventure called Life that one day we're going to make a film about. But <laughs> um, she's been with me through thick and thin, and uh, nursed me back to health and also was uh, a regular visitor to me when I was incarcerated uh, because she lived not far from where I was held and um, you know my darkest hour of need she was you know the brightest light Um, and I'm forever in her debt because of that but that's not why she's coming on the show Maria is a major uh I would say like mover and shaker in on the legitimate and legal side of the cannabis revolution here in Northern California. She's had a front row seat to a variety of uh, situations and endeavors and organizations and from politics to fundraising to uh, creating proposals to uh, get businesses legitimized and cannabis dispensaries opened and uh, townships where they were formerly banned and um, she is a also an inspirational journalist I should have backtracked when we first became friends she was an intrepid reporter for newspapers in South Florida Um, but so she's always been sort of a point of reference for me with my work Um, checks and balances a great editor and So in the capacity of a journalist, she's done a lot of writing in the cannabis world in recent years. Um, But she's also been on multiple sides of the fence in that 
in that fight, in that battle, and also in the celebration and in the victory. Um, so I was going to do a episode on the Emerald Cup, which is a like cannabis cup that happens out here in California that had an explosion this year, and uh, you know the music was out of control with funky meters and rising Appalachia. Dirty Bird DJs were there. It was pretty insane. And I did some interviews while I was there, and I was going to do an all Emerald Cup episode. But I don't know. It didn't seem like it was going to be as impactful as I'd hoped. Um, so I'm just going to, like, drop the interviews that I did in that capacity into other episodes. Um, and I really wanted to have Maria on soon and with Metiana and the whole Latina women just power I thought it was appropriate to put them together as like a two-pack um, of really inspiring and uh, just women who are out there doing the damn thing, doing it well, um, with class and panache and style, and, and really kind of showing us the way. And Maria is one of those gals. And... I'm honored and privileged to call her one of my best friends and uh, my ride or die. And I hope this is the first of uh, several appearances that she has on the show because she has her own radio show, which she talks about. She also uh, is very well-versed in music and music culture. And she's been not just to Burning Man and Bear Creek with me, but to music festivals all over the country and Envision and hundreds or I should say a hundred ish fish shows and she's a hardcore lettuce fan which is why I put that as the bed of music for her interview so uh, I'm gonna let this lettuce gang 10 from Clifton Park New York ride out and then we are going to hear from my blesty Miss Madi Maria Herrera And we're live on the Up For Life podcast. I'm your host, B. Getz, and I am coming to you live and direct from Grass Valley, California. I'm here with one of my dearest friends, Maria Herrera, somebody I've known for, you know, better part of a decade now. Uh, met her at Spirit of Swanee Music Park, uh, like I said, about 10 years ago, and uh, we became the fastest of friends. And uh, because this is the Emerald Cup special, I'm here uh, to talk to Maria a little bit about uh, the cannabis industry and uh, some of the changes and evolutions in her uh, own journey uh, in and out of the cannabis world. So welcome, Maria. Thanks, Thanks for, for coming. Thanks for having me, B. I'm very excited. Thanks for inviting me to your podcast. Uh, it's an honor and a privilege to have you. And uh, I know that the listeners out there will be interested in your uh, wealth of perspective. Uh, so let's just start with how did you kind of come into uh, the cannabis industry? It was kind of by accident. I happened to be living out here in Northern California and, you know, had a lot of friends who were involved in some way or another in, in the industry. And back then it was uh, the collective model, what we call Prop 215, right, where people could 
cultivate for a number of patients um, and then dispose or you know share the leftovers if you will with with dispensaries statewide so anyways i um had just moved out here from south florida um i was freelancing a little bit and uh a few years into being here, a friend of mine um, just kind of called me out of the blue and wanted me to help him put together a, a campaign against a, a measure, a local measure, Measure W, which would have banned outdoor cultivation in Nevada County. So that's kind of how I got involved. That was sort of the, the gateway that led to many other things after that. So I interviewed some wonderful people for that um, insert. It was an insert that ran in the local newspaper. And I got to know how things were transitioning. It was during the time where the state of California was beginning to put together uh, what was called MMRSA, the Medical Marijuana Regulatory and Safety Act. And um, and things were still in the air, you know. the The industry had um, yet to figure itself out. Okay, so for the folks that aren't familiar with the culture in Northern California, um, when you talk about uh, a measure Measure W, which I remember well, and the campaigns on both sides, um, can you maybe just paint uh, the picture for what? Uh, cannabis culture was like, say, in the Prop 215 era and in the shadows and and why uh, a measure like this would go to a a local vote? Yeah, so um, I guess in the shadows is a good way to describe how the the industry existed for many, many years prior to Prop 64, which uh, legalized adult use um, cannabis in the state of California. So that happened two years ago, by the way. So anyways, um, under Prop 215, people were very quiet and hidden in the hills. No one really like told their neighbors what they did. And uh, for good reason. I mean, it, it was the, the Prop 215, what Prop 215 and SB 420 allowed, these were two bills over the past 20 years that kind of semi-regulated cannabis, right? But there were a lot of gray areas. Um, what it did, it provided a certain protection in the court of law for people who cultivated cannabis, got busted by the, lo- the locals, and then would have to go to court and say, well, I have 20 recommendations I was growing for these 20 people. And so that was kind of like the story that defense. The people kept to themselves. Uh, the- when you say recommendations, that's basically the industry speak for a doctor, a cannabis doctor writing a prescription for a patient. And Correct. so when you say you have 20 recommendations, it means you, in essence, are responsible to grow for, for 20, 20 patients. patients. Okay. Yeah. Please continue. So, so anyways, people kept to themselves on the, the least that your neighbors knew about what you were doing, the better. And, you know, um, that also uh, attracted a lot of people in the past, you know, let's say 10 years. They were sort of the OGs, no pun intended or pun intended. (laughs) And then, you know, there was this new wave of people of sort of this um, West Coast festival culture that also kind of infiltrated the hills, right? 
people began doing the same thing, having, you know, full-on operations. And with that came also a lot of advances in technology, you know, uh, the way people cultivated light deprivation became a thing, you know. And so people definitely um, were very fruitful and, you know, made a lot of money during those years and grew for a lot of patients. And there was a lot of legitimate advocacy um, that that took place, um, a lot of patients that uh, were able to work one-on-one with medicine makers um, with amazing results that, you know, were largely undocumented because this was all under the table, right? Very sort of um, kind of, uh, I wouldn't say neglected. The, the word is more like um, very under the radar kind of culture. Um, and you have uh, also a cornucopia of styles, of, of scenes, of, of cliques, right, within the cannabis culture that have also sort of uh, made the transition into the legal industry. We'll talk a little bit more about that. But anyways. So when this time when the growers were in the shadows and they were operating under Prop 215, I mean, it's understood that on a federal level that meant nothing and that, you know, only in the state of California could you grow, uh, what at the time was it, uh, 99 plants, am I right? In some places. In some places, okay, so it was county to county? It was county to county, And that brings us to Measure W, right? Exactly, so Measure W would have prohibited any kind of outdoor cultivation or commercial cultivation in the county, a complete ban, basically. And what was the impetus for this movement? Was it, in, in essence, the the non-cannabis residents of Nevada County kind of had it up to here and they wanted to stem the flow of gardens that had kind of, in, like you said, infiltrated, if you will? Or was it, you know, more sinister? Like, uh... I think, you know, it's, it's hard as a journalist to think of, you know, sinister plans. I think that there was definitely a culture clash. The town, you know, while it saw a renaissance of, you know, culture and shops and, and diversity, it, it also, that also clashed with, you know, the very conservative values of people who have been here for decades, you know, for generations. So um, I, I think that was part of it. Part of it was, again, sort of this lack of uh, regulatory uh, structure from the state, right? It was basically county to county, jurisdiction by jurisdiction. And so you had this sort of uh, different styles that law enforcement approached this, you know, very loosely put together um, cannabis regulations. So anyways, Measure W like uh, attempted to, to stop all of that. And what happened is like several things, right? It was, it was like a cocktail of, of factors. You had Bernie on the ballot. It was during the primary. This was a June election. Um, and then you had a lot of people um, galvanized, right, behind this issue because they understood the value of this underground economy for like, you know, the the tire shop and um, Builders the local and organic store, right? Um, and so people mobilized, and Measure W was defeated overwhelmingly, I think, by sixty-two percent. But we'll have to check those facts because it's been a couple of years. And so that what what that did that uh, 
created a, a perfect storm. The local elected officials realized, okay, it's time to regulate this thing. It's time to come up with our own set of rules. Um, you have to understand this was right around the time the state was itself putting together what has been the largest body of regulatory work that you know any government has rolled out in a, in a long time. The internet is not even regulated to this extent, right? It basically managed to put a barcode in a plan that they can track now from seed to sale, to actual final consumption. Like any other product. Even more than any other product, because if you find a candy bar at a playground, you probably can't trace it back to who bought it and where they bought it. Whereas with a vape cartridge package, for example, you can actually trace it back to the dispensary that sold it. If it's a medical dispensary to the patient that bought it, um, you can track it back all the way back the supply chain down to where the plant that went to make that, that oil came from. So Interesting. Now, you had a front row seat for, for Measure W, and obviously you've had a front row seat for a lot of this navigating of regulations and legislature and so forth. So um, you worked for a, a local county uh, advocacy group that was in essence working in concert or in tandem with the you know the small family grower that is trying to step into the legitimate world and come out of their shadows uh, maybe you just sort of share your experiences with these type of farmers and uh, and also just help people understand that this isn't we're not talking about cartel stuff and drug dealing i mean this is family businesses and heritage parcels of right. land and well, stuff. Well, these people are definitely, um, you know, part of the fabric of this community and have helped, um, you know, shape the cultural values that exist here today. What Measure W did, though, was that there were several organizations that campaigned against it. Um, so the message from the county officials was like, hey, you, you guys need to organize and... Um, you know, create a unified voice that can carry your message, right? And so that's exactly what we did. All these different organizations got together and they formed um, what they call the Nevada County Cannabis Alliance, an advocacy group that um, they just that advocate for the small farmer. And so what that's uh, what started happening is people started coming out of the shadows and um, becoming members of the alliance and helping the alliance um, advocate for again the the elected officials had been used to relating a, a cannabis grower or, or a cultivator with a mugshot in the paper right for years and years and years that was their impression that was you know what they thought a cannabis grower was. So, but all of a sudden, there's a different kind of grower showing up and speaking at county um, meetings and advocating one-on-one -on -one with elected officials. These are family uh, farmers, people who also grow maybe other crops, people who have a business plan and um, you know a, a plan to transition into this new regulated market that has formed over the past couple of years. So... Um, you know, the, it, it was very amazing and impressive to see, right, how it shifted the image of the grower, someone who, you know, maybe with guns on a hill, 
dogs and, you know, just sort of this kind of like very sinister image of, you know, a, a cannabis cultivator with a farmer, businessman, family man or woman. And uh, eloquent, able to provide input on how to regulate the industry locally, able to um, debate with the opposition and squash some of the fears that have, you know, been created as a result of all this unregulated industry with actual solutions. Because, you know, the, well, the golden years were really good for people, for patients and, and uh, for the local abundance that existed here it was also very devastating to the environment people were using things that were not approved for human consumption you know you had very dirty cannabis all over this great country because people were using tons of pesticides and fertilizers and growing this stuff you know within 500 feet feet of a a, a river a protected area so while regulations um are onerous and really hard to abide to for a lot of farmers, especially like, you know, this is a cultural shift as well. They're also good for the environment and they're good ultimately for the consumer. Have you noticed um, maybe some folks in the community that were formerly against, you know, cannabis cultivation and and the culture um, through the efforts of the Nevada County Cannabis Alliance and other, you know, dedicated foot soldiers in this mission have you noticed uh, as substantial change in the sort of perception or consciousness of maybe some of those you know older generation or you know non-cannabis <coughs> non-cannabis industry folks uh, locally that might have been the ones that were voting for measure w might be the ones that are showing up at the city council meetings complaining about water being stolen or diverted or any number of the environmental concerns that you listed. Um, are you seeing a change in both sides? Are farmers getting with the program and are uh, is the community beginning to come around? Yeah, both, definitely. I mean, the, the changes in the mentality, the, the sort of, you know, um, really reefer madness kind of attitude towards the industry has totally shifted. You have people from now both sides of the aisle conversing and, and having meetings and having tours of regulated farms to kind of sort of open the eyes to what the new industry looks like, right? What the regulated industry looks like and how it can help squash some of those fears of, you know, um, diverting product to youth and children you know I mean this is an industry that's completely tracked so that's virtually impossible um, whereas the black market you know anyone could get a hand on whatever you wanted so um, yeah people have definitely shifted their the mentality they're a lot more open there's always going to be the people who you know for some reason or another can get past the fear but um, and then on the farmer side, people are just definitely getting with the program, although it's been very slow. It's been like steering a giant ship around. You have to understand that for years, people like make sure that you didn't leave a receipt, you know, on the counter that had right. to do with your operation. Now you better save every receipt because you have a business to run and just like if you own a bakery you're gonna have to expend some things or you're gonna have to you know create a budget for you know nutrients and soil and have you know w9s for contract employees and 
So people are, this is a huge shift. You know, you went from being a farmer all of a sudden to having to run a business that needs insurance, that needs, you know, a corporate entity, an attorney, an accountant. So that has been a really hard pill to swallow for a lot of people that, you know, had moved out to the hills to live a life that was completely free right that was um not beholden to the laws of the land exactly you, you know it, it's the the t- turning away from babylon really and creating a reality that um is in alignment with you know what you believe in you know maybe it was living off grid and growing your own food and growing cannabis and having that as an income to support the entire, you know, operation, uh, or, you know, having cannabis fund art projects. Um, I mean, definitely Burning Man culture benefited for years from this industry because it generated a lot of, you know, abundance. Right. Disposable income that could be, uh, you know, given to the arts. Exactly. And so now you see a lot of belts tightening up because sure. one, it's not what it used to be. You can't fetch the same amount of money for, you know, uh, units, a unit than, than you used to in the unregulated market and you have taxes to pay and you have insurance. And so it has definitely, uh, changed the face, right? Um, however, you know, the reason why we're here is to talk about the Emerald Cup, right? One of the reasons why I consider that event tending important event in the history of cannabis culture in Northern California is because still even through this transition, right, of making businessmen out of farmers, you still have the people who hold true to all the things that they believe in and and that are passionate about the plant, not the business that the plant brings. And that's a whole another subject that we could get into you know because it's not just the business it's about people's relationship with the plan and how that translates to the consumer and how that translates to that person who's trying to you know fight anxiety or nausea from chemotherapy yeah yeah exactly what i wanted to pivot to we've talked a lot about the societal or cultural or even a little bit about the marketplace but how about the science here at the emerald cup um you know, it's funny when, when you and I, when we go to festivals, uh, you know, we always check out the slate of workshops and the sort of like education that's available at the different music festivals. A lot of enlightened and, you know, very uh, passionate and brilliant people come through and take the opportunity to, to tell the music festival about the great strides being made in any number of arenas. So that almost seemed like a blueprint for what is happening at the emerald cup because you have the main event which is all the cannabis and uh, associated industry that's attached to it and and exhibits and so forth and then you have the live music which is a big draw but really i think that the most impactful stuff happens in the little classrooms and workshops and stuff and you know before the event you talked to me uh, about a few folks that you were looking forward to but we don't have to go through the schedule per se maybe just talk a little bit about since the industries come out of the shadows how has that enabled you know the the scientists and the thinkers and the uh, you know entrepreneurs on the you know medicinal end and 
all the different various uses for cannabis um, outside of recreational enjoyment. How has that exploded? Well, I think it has definitely empowered people to be a lot more vocal about the um, studies or the work that they have been doing behind the scenes for, for decades. Um, I think that there's a couple distinctions to be made, right, as the sort of academic um, studies and, and body of work that's very limited in the United States because of the you know federal designation of cannabis. Um, no university has you know been able to like take up the the um, task of really studying cannabis except for a few. Right, you had the uh, University of Mississippi, and so there's a lot of scientists that are not arguing that the studies coming out of um, you know, some of these institutions are not necessarily um, that credible because the, the quality of the product is not the same quality of the product that people have been working <clears throat> out here on these hills, you know, forever. Um, and so you have this amazing healers, you know, that have been making medicine and working one-on-one with patients and sort of documenting the results, right? And so you have that sort of unofficial body of work of science. And then people, as a result of this explosion, people are being more vocal, sharing that, especially if they can no longer, um, because of the regulations, do the work themselves anymore. So you have that aspect of it. And then you have sort of the, you know, uh, official um, academia, you know, the, the doctors starting to realize, okay, how do we incorporate, how do we empower our patients to make choices? Um, about their their health, about their well-being. You know, perhaps one of those things is by allowing them to try cannabis for a host of things. Do you think establishment medicine is make, is any closer to, uh, you know, endorsing cannabis? You know, because a lot of the times you see, like, off the record, a general uh, physician will tell you, and they won't put it on your chart or whatever, but they'll whisper to you, you know, you might want to try some weed. Right. One way or another. I don't know. It's hard to say whether the, you know, um, uh, an organization like the American Association, you know, Medical Association right. would, you know, endorse cannabis tomorrow or 10 years from now after exhaustive, you know, studies. But what we are seeing is, again, doctors feeling a little bit more comfortable telling people, well, you know, you hurt your knee, maybe try some cannabis salve or, you know, something that doesn't have to be prescribed, which is why the legalization of cannabis is so important. Because if you are a patient, it allows you, again, it empowers you to try things that perhaps you didn't try before that may make you feel better and then, um, you know, decrease the use of some of these like over-the-counter pharmaceuticals that have, you know, more side effects than right. good effects. So, um, but going back to the point, I think it's, it's, it's getting very easy for people to find credible body of work when it comes to uh, studies you know there's a great study out there about um, cannabis enables um, basically uh, the ability for cancer cells to self-destruct 
in certain types of cancer, certain types of breast cancer, for example, or liver cancer. And, um, and then we already know that a lot of the effects that people get from either smoking or ingesting or using cannabis helps with the side effects of things like chemotherapy and radiation that has the ability to improve someone's quality of life, you know, threefold, if not more. So, you know, the cat is out of the bag. I don't think anyone questions whether cannabis is, you know, um, beneficial in some way or another. It's just that, you know, it's a plant and, you know, we're all different. The idea in Western medicine that you can have this one pill that works for right. everybody. One is size kind of, fits all, right. Right. It's kind of silly because we all react to things. And life is not like that. Exactly. So I think in that sense, you know, cannabis is very um, peculiar and people re really do need to... Um, you know, if you're trying to use it for inspiration, find a rhythm rather than sort of this mindless consumption, uh, consumption right. right? Find a rhythm, something that enables, that changes your perspective enough to see life a little bit differently, better. Maybe you're yeah. trying to solve an issue. Maybe you're trying to calm yourself down or maybe you're trying to, you know, write that song and need some inspiration, whatever right. it may be, you know, it has the ability to change your perspective and that's always a good thing. Now, it's also not acute. Like, for instance, my mom, as we've talked about before, is using medical cannabis. She was not a cannabis smoker, a recreational user, and she's in her 70s and she's got a you know, medical recommendation from the state of New Jersey. She goes to a dispensary, shows her ID, pays by credit card. I mean, this is all, you know, given what she lived through, what I lived through, to be able to now go into a dispensary, see a doctor, um, and then she goes and speaks to her own friends and changing the perception of other people in her generation that were like, again, the reefer madness, demonization of it. At the same time, and you kind of glossed over this before, I just wanted to touch back on it. Uh, the federal scheduling is still Schedule 1, and uh, that's a ma major uh, inhibitor of some of the real strides we could make on a studying level, university level. It also makes things hairy on a business level for businesses from a tax perspective. Um, there's a lot of gray area there. Um, yeah, but even even in that area, it is beginning to change because again of that ripple effect that you just spoke of of your mother speaking to other people, right? I mean, um, John Boehner, former Speaker of the House, recently had um, yeah. had an op-ed in the Washington Post. But he's also a paid you know, lobbyist, so which is incredible to me that that guy. Went. That's another thing we're going to talk about: big cannabis. In, right. Right. In, so. But so then it's spreading, right? It's spreading like wildfire. This whole CBD thing is spreading like wildfire, and we can have a whole show yeah, just on we're that. Yeah, we're gonna do. When I first started talking to you tonight, uh, I asked how you got involved, and uh, you kind of went on a local level here. But um, I'm aware that you have a much deeper and more personal connection to cannabis movement and its uh, the medicinal properties. Maybe talk to the people a little bit about, you know, your personal connection. Sure. Um, well, part of the the sort of spark and the passion for the advocacy definitely came from my experience with my dad, who was diagnosed with colon cancer at first, and after having surgery to 
you know, remove the tumor, and then part of his colon um, um, was found to have also cancer in his liver and in his lungs. <clears throat> so being so close to, like I said, all these amazing medicine makers and just starting to kind of get to know local culture around the plant, um, I ran into an amazing group of people who were making medicine specifically for cancer patients. And um, they gifted me a couple of um, different tinctures. Um, and, you know, all they asked, they didn't ask for any compensation. All they asked was that my dad kept a diary of, you know, how he felt during, during this regiment. And so, you know, being kind of also steeped in, uh, like, herbalism and sort of, you know, natural medicine culture, I started also looking into medicinal mushrooms, right, like reishi, lion's mane, specifically for liver um, issues. And, um, you know, develop sort of this alternative um, medicine regimen for him as he was going through uh, chemo, a second round of chemo and radiation. Um, the wonderful thing was six months into this, they found that nine out of 11 tumors had disappeared. So um, the, the doctor was so surprised that we, you know, had to attribute some of that to you know, th this treatment, this cannabis treatment treatment he was undergoing. So, <clears throat> um, you know, I started diving deep into the science behind it, diving deep into, again, at the same time being a journalist, sort of um, digging up and swallowing <laughs> all this information coming out about regulations changing, about the evolution of the industry, and sort of became really um, well educated just by again, digging deep into the well of knowledge that I found online. And so this, of course, led me to start writing about these things, about my experiences. Um, I had a couple of uh, friends who had just started uh, cannabis brands wanting me to write about, you know, the, the sort of medicinal properties of cannabis and the benefits, especially of sustainably grown cannabis. And so that's how... I kind of got into, you know, one thing led to another. Then I was writing for the Alliance. As a result, I started working one-on-one -on -one with some businesses, including the local uh, dispensary. And, um, you know, the rest is kind of history. I landed, uh, I inherited a radio show yeah. at a local radio station uh, talking about cannabis every month. What's the, name, what's the name of the radio show and when can people tune in? Sure, it's called uh, Higher Frequency, Elevated Conversations About Cannabis on KVMR. Um, KVMR is our local community-owned radio station. You can tune in probably by going on kvmr.org. And we're on the second Friday of every month at noon. Um, <clears throat> the, the evolution of the show is kind of interesting also. The show used to be called uh, Cannabis Crusades. And it was uh, hosted by a wonderful woman named Patty Smith, who was definitely the, you know, uh, go-to cannabis advocate in the county. I mean, prior to all these organizations forming and popping up, Patty was definitely the champion of the cannabis cause locally. So, um, again, after regulations started to change, we decided to change the name of the show to Higher Frequency. 
and to reflect sort of this, you know, elevated place in which, you know, cannabis has come to be, that is um, beginning to be respected and um, believed in by many people. And you have a co-host, right? I do. Her name is Sarah Cruz. She's a wonderful, wonderful gal. I'm very lucky to have her as a co-host. Uh, she used to lead the local chapter of Women Grow. And she is now a manager at Elevation 2477, the local dispensary that I helped brand and other things. <laughs> yeah, it's an amazing uh, place that is the first dispensary in Nevada County and it's located in Nevada City. Um, some great people behind uh, this business and this endeavor. And um, as you stated, you uh, were involved in the branding and the launch. So I understand that that was a long and arduous process politically and culturally as well. And you developed a lot of relationships and, uh, you know, dialogue with people in government and people in community groups I'd be interested if you could maybe give a Cliff Notes version of, you know, from the idea of opening the dispensary to the day the doors opened and maybe some of the bumps in the road that you overcame and maybe some, I don't know, allies that, you know, revealed themselves along the way. Sure. Um, well, that was a project a, a friend of mine basically approached me about helping him brand um uh, you know, the idea, it was just an idea at the time of uh, a local dispensary. The Nevada County Cannabis Alliance at the time was working with um, local officials, developing an ordinance. And <clears throat> so it was, um, I, I feel really interesting how we were able to come up with a, a concept, right? Just uh, from the name to the ethos to, you know, the vision behind it that was in alignment with the values of the, of the community. Um, and I think that's why it was so successful. It was um, w one picked out of three candidates. They were only given one license, so it was a highly competitive process. And what did that process entail? Um, you know, the, the local community uh, had a very thorough application process and entailed uh, coming up with a community uh, benefit plan, um, things like, you know, how... How would this business interact with local nonprofits and contribute to the community? I think that was one, you know, winning uh, aspect of, of the proposal was, you know, how involved it was with maintaining local trails and um, participating in cooking for the homeless at a, a, a local shelter here, the hospitality house. And so, um, you know, again, while it was highly contentious, um, it was also... Uh, very beautiful to see, right, how the perception changed from, from concept, something was written on paper, to when it opened its doors and uh, city and county <coughs> officials were able to, like, visit and be uh, impressed and at awe of, you know, how well-run and professional the place really is. So, and it's a beautiful dispensary. We have amazing artwork by um, artists like Mars One, Damon Soul, Oliver Vernon. Um, we have some incredible collaborations of all of them. Uh, so it's, it, um, it's really incredible just to see how 
how beautiful the place turned out and how well run. It has um, one of the things I think that was also uh, a winning point was the educational aspect behind that it's not just a place that dispenses cannabis, but also a place where people can come in and learn about cannabis and its benefits or take an Ayurvedic class or learn about, you know, um, the endocannabinoid system. So I think it's, it's definitely an asset to the community. I would agree. You know, I was really thrilled. I was on my way out of town that, you know, I, I lived here through April and you guys launched in August. So I saw the majority of the process and uh, come back to, you know, see the building and sit in the lobby. But uh, on the topic of Elevation 2477, it's a medical use facility now um, and has been since its launch this summer. But news recently dropped it was in the paper. It's no secret anymore that adult use cannabis was approved for uh, the dispensary and this area. Um, how do you think that that will impact uh, the community even more so as, than you already have? Uh, well, first of all, the you know elevation was a um, um, a project you know that I helped manage and you know come to fruition since opening its door is definitely uh, you know been running on its own um, by its amazing owners Daniel Bachelor and Jonathan Hogander and uh, a team of like local um, people who are very passionate about cannabis and they were um, you know again I think that the the place has been so well run that it was easy for city officials to kind of open their mind to the idea of adult use and allowing anyone over the age of 21 as permitted by the state of California to come in and purchase cannabis. It was something that the city officials did not want to kind of start off with. But again, over the past year has sort of changed their mind. Um, it got a unanimous vote. So that was um, very refreshing to see. And um, I think this creates greater access for patients. Um, one of the things that the dispensary was seeing was a lot of people walk away because they didn't have a physician's recommendation, so they couldn't come in. And you have to understand that a lot of people are realizing the benefits of, of cannabis and not necessarily wanting to um, you know, pay that extra $100 to get a physician's recommendation. What Maybe they just want to use it temporarily for an injured knee or, um, you know, again. Any number. Exactly. So um, I think, in, you know, at a sort of gov governmental level, the city is definitely going to see a lot more taxes coming as a result. So it's a, it's a win-win for everyone. Indeed. Okay, you've been very generous with your time, and we hope that uh, you enjoyed yourself and that you would be open to coming back semi-regularly to the Up for Life podcast. So I want to thank you for your time, but I do want to ask one uh, last question. And, uh, you know, first we saw Colorado go legal, and then Washington and California followed suit. Now a bunch of states have popped up, even on the East Coast, Massachusetts, 37. Maine. 37. How about that? Well, that means that there's still 37 medical. There's 37 states that have some sort of medical or adult use um, program. Okay. So for the folks out there that are listening that are still worried about getting pulled over with the eighth in their pocket on their way home from whatever show they saw, or the people who unfortunately have had uh, legal consequences due to their possessing and enjoying cannabis, um, and they're hearing about us talking about opening stores, talking about research, 
Um, how can somebody who lives in a state with more draconian laws and perspective, how can they get involved on a grassroots level? Because you've been uh, somebody who's experienced a grassroots uh, activism in cannabis um, on a lot of levels that we've just talked about. So for the person that lives somewhere and it's just it's still an undercurrent or it's still, um, you know, illegal with not a lot of light at the end of the tunnel, where do, how do they get involved? Well, first of all, I would say, you know, it's definitely important to respect the laws of whatever state, you know, people live in or country or, you know, their local jurisdiction. I definitely um, not going to encourage any kind of criminal activity. So I think no. the first thing that I mean, people activism. need, yeah, the, the first thing that people should, should do is find out what, what are the laws at, for your local, you know, jurisdiction, your state. And if you don't like those laws, then um, get involved. Maybe find a local organization that is working to educate Again, the, the key is not uh, putting up a fight. The key is to educate because, you know, I think knowledge has the power to change minds. When you have facts in front, in front of you, it's hard to refute them, right? So getting involved with a local organization and, again, educating yourself for, first and foremost, not just of, you know, what your local cannabis regulations are, but, you know, how do laws get passed? You know, how do you know who is your county commissioner or your state, your local state senator? So um, I think that's where it starts, you know, with just educating yourself. Would you think if somebody went to like Normal's website or something, they could find uh, a list of organizations in their region that they could get involved with? Well, that's definitely one resource. Um, and there's a host of other resources. Okay. And um I mean, it's um, without having them in front of me, it's hard to say. But I would just again, Google is a powerful tool. <laughs> Google your local cannabis, you know, organization, and I'm sure you will find something that you know a thread that you can start pulling. Right on. Well, hopefully, some of the topics we discussed will be a, a boon to people's spirits who live in those places and are dealing with such things. I'll concur with you. People should respect the laws and. The, jur the jurisdictions in which they live. So on that note, we'll wrap it up from Grass Valley, California. We're here with Maria Herrera, um, journalist, activist, uh, co-host of Higher Frequency radio show on KVMR. Uh, you can listen on kvmr.org. And that's what, second Fridays? Second Fridays. At noon Pacific. Mm -hmm. All right. So I'll sign off. Uh, this has been your Emerald Cup coverage on the Up for Life podcast. I'm your host, B. Getz, and we will see you next time. We're going to sing an old song to catch off. We're going to sing an old familiar song.
Yes, indeedy. That was Miss Maria Herrera checking in on what's going down on the front lines of Cannabis Revolution, Northern California. And uh, really excited for her to come on to the podcast, the quasi-reoccurring role on a variety of topics du jour. We've reached the end of episode nine. I want to thank Maria and, of course, the amazing Ms. Maitiana Morales of Walk Talk and Pimps of Joy Time for being so gracious with their time and their thoughts. We appreciate you. And I want to come back on something I brought up earlier about putting a focus on featuring, spotlighting powerful women doing amazing things out there in the culture. Um, I want to give props and respect to a journalist named Dahlia from Music Fest News, um, who I've conversed with online several times and had a lovely powwow with at Halloween this year. I'm not even going to try your last name on the air. I apologize, but Dahlia, if you're out there listening... Um, thank you for, you know, putting it out there when you were the one who said that you wanted to put a spotlight on women of the jam scene and really uh, have a concerted effort this year to focus on women doing the damn thing out there in the jam scene. And we talked about that a little bit at Halloween. And, you know, I didn't want to swagger jack you. So I'm um, kind of joining you in this effort to spotlight women not only in the jam scene but just on a variety of scenes um so thank you for you know lighting that torch and i'm going to carry it alongside of you because uh there are just so many tremendous and inspiring profound artists and people behind the scenes that are women uh, in an industry and in a culture and a society that is uh, decidedly stacked against them. So anything we can do to bring change to that, uh, we're going to do here at the Up Full Life and at the Up Full Life podcast. Um, so at the end of the episode, as we're wont to do, we've got the Vibe Junkie Jam of the Week. And like I said, my man Randy dropped the D'Angelo bomb on us and uh, been heavy on the D but uh, that said uh, we're going to go with some brand new D'Angelo from the Red Dead Redemption 2 official soundtrack which is a video game one of those virtual reality video games these kids are into crazy stuff today but this is uh, like one of those you live in the game kind of things I suppose but uh New Orleans' own uh, Daniel Lanois and uh, Cyril Neville of the legendary Neville family of New Orleans, the first family of New Orleans, I should say, um, and Brian Blade on drums. But this is really just a D'Angelo and Daniel Lanois collaboration. It's We've been playing the funk, you know, behind this as a bed, uh, 
Funk from 2000, Los Angeles show, original version of Roberta Flack's Feel Like Making Love by D'Angelo and the Soultronics. But the Vibe Junkie Jam of the Week, we're going to go with Unshaken, uh, like I said, from D'Angelo. Uh, Red Dead Redemption 2 soundtrack. Let this hopefully be the beginning of a new batch of songs or some reliable tour dates or just you know we don't want to rush the guy but the streets and the people and the culture need you michael d'angelo archer so whenever you're ready we are willing and able Um, so thank you for dropping this unshaken it is like i said far from the funk it is uh almost gospel like really powerful vocal harmonies and chill inducing goosebumps magic from d i want to thank everyone for tuning in to the up full life podcast i'm your host b gets and we will see you next time
was there, but I could not see. And I don't wonder, as a way was sung, was a hunter be hunted by the smoke of your wood. 